How are we doing? All right. Do you know what? This is the first time I've spoken in what feels like forever. So, uh, Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, I just need to get straight on with it this morning because we've got a lot to get through. All right, we're going to be continuing our series in Matthew this morning. And um, we've reached the key point of the whole gospel message. All right. We've reached a key point, not only in Matthew's gospel, but in human history completely. All right, today we're going to be looking at the death of Jesus on the cross, which is interesting given that we've talked a lot about it this morning already, haven't we? That was not rehearsed, so that makes me feel positive coming into this. Um, We're looking at the death of Jesus today, and the death of Jesus is what uh, makes a difference to all of our lives. It's what takes us from being a random group of people here in central Stockton and makes us a family. It's what takes a diverse um, multitude of people across the world and says that we're all joined together. This is something which has impacted human history and it's a really key moment and I hope you've, uh, I've caught your attention already. All right. Um, today's talk is called Friday and we're going to be looking at the events that happened on Good Friday of Easter week. We're continuing on from what Chris shared last week. How good was Chris? He was great, wasn't he? It's great, yeah. Well done to you, mate. He's really coming along as a preacher, and it's, uh, it's good to see. Right, let's get straight into it. If you've got your Bible this morning, we're in Matthew 27, and uh, we're not going to have three points this morning. I'm sorry to say it. I'm breaking from tradition. We're not going to have three points. You're going to have to keep up as I randomly go through this passage in little chunks. Is that all right? Can we cope with that? Excellent. Okay, let's start reading from verse 27 then of uh, chapter 27. So then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And they spat on him, and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Let's stop there, all right? What a start, eh? Um, I just want to paint a picture of what's going on this morning at the start, okay? Because this is, of course, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, something that we've all heard about. But it just struck me this week as I was planning this that I'm a little bit too comfortable with crucifixion. I don't know about you. I'm a little bit too comfortable with it. So I was reading my uh, Eden's children's Bible this week and there it was. Jesus was crucified like it was nothing. And I was thinking, no, that's not right. So I just want to remind us this morning about how gruesome and how bad crucifixion actually was. Because it can become a little bit second nature to us, can't it? Like, oh, Jesus was crucified. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about crucifixion, all right? Uh, It was invented by the Persians. Have we got any Persians here? Got a few. It was invented by the Persians. And it was meant as the cruelest method of punishment and death. So cheers, guys. It was meant as the cruelest way of being punished. There were other ways in the ancient world of putting people to death, but this was by far the most barbaric, all right? It was the most gruesome. As you probably know, crucifixion was a slow and painful way to die. A person would be hung up on a cross with their uh, arms stretched out, nails put through their wrists and through their ankle bones, and there they would slowly suffocate to death. 
The only way they'd be able to breathe is by pushing up on their ankle bones to let air get into the diaphragm. Imagine the pain of having to push up on those nails that have been driven into the ankles. The person would eventually uh, suffocate to death or die of exhaustion because they couldn't push up anymore. Or if they were lucky, they would have their legs broken and they'd be killed instantly. Pretty rough, eh? They were hung on display, often completely naked and ashamed in front of everyone. In fact, crucifixion was so bad that Romans only really did it to those that they wouldn't class as being Roman. So they would do it most often to, often to slaves, to foreigners, to people from other armies that they'd defeated. It was only in rare occasions that they would do it to other Romans. And it was so bad that people wouldn't even speak about it. It was like the unspeakable thing. People knew it happened, but they didn't like talking about it because it was so barbaric. Are you getting the picture? It's pretty bad, right? Excellent. Romans would usually crucify people on flat ground as well. And we quite often get this picture in our, in our Bibles, don't we, of uh, Jesus on a hill with two people. Well, more often than not, people were actually crucified on flat land right by the roadside. And the idea is that people would walk past and right next to them would be someone hanging on the cross. That would further add to the humiliation. People would hurl abuse at them. But it would also be a reminder that if you messed with the Romans, this is what would happen to you too. It's pretty tough to talk about crucifixion, isn't it? It's not very nice to hear about it. It's a bit PG. But it's probably not PG, it's probably 18 rated if we're talking about movies. Um, but I just wanted to remind us this morning of what Jesus went through. And how Hebrews 12.2 says that it was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. All right, so Jesus went through all of this unspeakable pain and torture and misery because he loved us. We've heard about that this morning, haven't we? But not only that, it brought him joy to be in a restored relationship with us. So us being able to have a relationship with God through this death, this was a source of great joy. But it came at a harrowing price and of great sacrifice. Let me give you a quote. This is um, Bible teacher Andrew Wilson. He says, the cross of Jesus is a gory story of shame, pain, violence, and silence. It is almost impossible to speak too strongly about it. If it doesn't bother us, then we probably haven't thought it through. Like the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide, it's a sort of event for which indifferent reactions are completely inappropriate. Do you see that? It's impossible to look at the events we're talking about today without feeling something. We've got to feel something. There are multiple reactions. Maybe thankfulness. Maybe sadness. Maybe even joy. But we need to be reminded of just what Jesus went through. Like, yes, we're free now. Yes, we can have a relationship with God. Yes, we can walk in that freedom. We can be restored. We can celebrate the victory. Of course we can, and we do regularly, don't we? But we also need to remember the cost. And we need to remember what Jesus went through. You see, the reality is that God needed to treat Jesus like you and me deserve to be treated, so that he could treat us the way that Jesus deserved to be treated. Do you get that? 
it's kind of summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was a beautiful exchange. We're made right with God, but suffering and punishment needed to be handed out first. All right, so even before the actual crucifixion, there was the mocking. This is what we read about in the passage just then. Let me tell you, it would have been common for Roman soldiers to play games with the people who were being crucified, kind of adding to the humiliation. And it was also a chance for the Roman soldiers to take out a bit of um, anger on the guys who were being crucified. You see, for these Roman soldiers, they'd have been brought into Jerusalem almost as like crowd control for this Jewish religious festival. They'd been kind of posted to the middle of nowhere, to Jerusalem, miles away from home, to look after these Jewish people that they didn't really like. So you can imagine it's like doing a rubbish job for the weekends. And they were like fed up of these Jews. So then they have the opportunity to take out some of that anger on the person being crucified. And one of the games they played was called the King's Game, all right? And they would literally make a mockery of the person who was being crucified. They would mock them and pretend to worship them. Can you imagine? They'd put a crown of thorns on his head. And by the way, like, I'm not talking about thorns that you find by the side of a cycle path or in your garden. You know, like when you're a kid and you go and get your ball out of the bush and you get spiked to the leg and it's like, ah, I get a plaster. Worse than that, all right? <laughs> I am talking about spiky spiky thing going into Jesus' head, blood pouring out, just awful. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on him. They only cared about making fun and making a mockery of Jesus. You're all feeling a bit sad now. Picture the scene, all right? He's been beaten. He's been humiliated. He's been mocked, he's been stripped down and then redressed. All of this is after he's been betrayed by his own followers, deserted by some others. He's had abuse hurled at him by the crowds, the same crowds who'd worshipped him just a week ago. Talk about a bad day, right? After all of that, they give him his cross to carry. A large piece of wood he'd have to carry to the place that he was going to die. Now, I'm not sure how Jesus was built, all right? He was a carpenter, so he's probably a bit stronger than I am, all right? Probably built a bit more like Reza or Moshtaba, you know, a proper man's man, all right? But even Jesus would probably have struggled to lift a massive piece of wood, right? Even more so after he's been severely beaten, all right? This would have been hard going. All right, just keep that in mind. Let's read on, okay? Let's carry on our passage from verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Let's pause there again for a second. You see, in the story now, we have probably, for me, one of the most fascinating characters in the whole of the Bible. And he's never really talked about. But I've always wondered about this guy, Simon of Cyrene. 
Because for all intents and purposes, this was just a random man minding his own business who ended up being part of the most amazing, significant uh, moment of time in history. Think about it. This man would have been a foreigner. He was from Northern Africa, from modern-day Libya, and he was just visiting Jerusalem for the festival. He was just visiting, and like anyone, he might have been a little bit nosy. He'd seen a crowd of people, and he's gone over to look at the crowd. I mean, we'd all do that, wouldn't we? I'd be the first there to try to find out what's going on. And as he goes over to the crowd, suddenly he's grabbed out of the crowd and forced to help Jesus in front of everyone. Now, let me tell you, right, this is a lose-lose situation for Simon because carrying a big piece of wood in front of a crowd of people is hard in the best times, isn't it? I'm picturing myself, I probably wouldn't be able to lift it, all right, but um, it's hard at the best times, but he's got to help Jesus, who's kind of half dead at this point. He's been severely beaten. Like, imagine the pressure you've got there. Like, if it was me, Jesus would be like, come on, Gav, give us a hand here, mate. Like, I couldn't, couldn't lift Like, this guy was uh, in a lose-lose situation. So why is he in the story? Why is this guy in the story? Well, I thought about this over the years, and I just want to share a few thoughts. The first one is this. The fact that his name is recorded at all seems to suggest this wasn't the end of the story for Simon. You see, if this was just a random man, he'd have been forgotten about afterwards. But the fact that we know his name means that clearly the early church was aware of this man. And it's likely that this encounter with Jesus had led him to go back to his home country and tell his friends and family and probably lead them to Jesus himself. It's likely that he'd become a believer after this. We don't know that for sure, but it's a pretty likely conclusion to come to. And you know what that says to me? That says that whether you're expecting it or not, you simply cannot encounter Jesus and be the same afterwards. You can't. When you meet Jesus, it changes everything in your life. And I mean that. It becomes a marker in your life. When you encounter Jesus, nothing is the same afterwards. I know that was the case for me. I was happily going about my life. And then I met Jesus as a teenager. I had my own plans. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the person I wanted to be. And I met Jesus. And all that changed. Suddenly I wanted to live for him. Suddenly I'd found a purpose that was greater than anything I could have imagined. When we encounter Jesus, it changes everything. My question for you this morning is, have you, like Simon in the story, encountered Jesus? And if you have, has it changed your life? Even if you weren't looking for him. Even if you kind of stumbled across him. The second conclusion I've come to of Simon of Cyrene, and this is a recent one, is this. I think that Simon in this story represents all of us. Let me explain that. See, Jesus was suffering for him. Yeah? Jesus uh, was dying for all of us. He was dying so that we could have a relationship with him. He was dying for the whole world, for the sins of the whole world, including Simon of Cyrene. So Simon would be made right with God because of what Jesus was doing. But for a brief moment in that story, we see Simon suffering alongside Jesus. What does that say for you? It says, yes, 
there's hope. Yes, there's a future. Yes, there's a relationship with God. But for us as people, there's also suffering. You see, having a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean life's plain sailing, does it? It doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, everything goes amazing and hunky-dory. No, no, we're still going to face issues. We're still going to have suffering. We're still going to have sickness and unemployment, financial issues, drug and alcohol problems, family breakdowns, whatever it is, we're still going to suffer just like Simon did in the story. But just like Simon in the story, we're part of a bigger picture. And suffering needs to be seen in light of that bigger picture. Yes, there was a moment of suffering for Simon, but there was a glorious future for him too. And I think that's one of the reasons this guy's in this story, to remind us that yes, we've got a future, but yes, there will also be suffering. All right, let's move on here. Verse 37, let's keep reading. You still with me, yeah? Good. Still awake? Just about. Okay. Above his head, they placed uh, the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross now and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Then let God rescue him now and do what he wants with him. For his I am the son of God. All right, let's just pause there, all right? Because in the famous words of great theological mind, Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? You didn't get it, did you? (laughs) You got it, thanks, John. (laughs) Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Okay. You see, we have an absolute moment of irony here where not for the first time, people completely miss the point. The teachers of the law completely miss the point. Because there's there's this exchange where the leaders say, come down from the cross if you are God. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. But this is completely, completely missing the uh, the point. Because the fact that Jesus didn't come down from the cross is exactly why they should believe in him. Yeah? Jesus was, in fact, doing exactly what they wanted. He was proving that he was God. He was proving that he was the Messiah, but he was doing it in an unexpected way. They wanted proof that he was God, and that's exactly what they got. Jesus was showing the greatest amount of restraint by sticking to the original plan. He was dying for the sins of the world. And you know what? This is another classic example of things not quite looking the way that they are. You see, on the face of it, Jesus was defeated, wasn't he? Or certainly very close to it. The religious leaders felt like they'd won. How many times does your life look like that to you? How many times does it look like God isn't working? We can look around society at the moment as it becomes more and more secular and we can think, God's been defeated. We've got to be careful what we say, careful who we speak to, careful what we tweet, careful with our opinions we've got. And we can look at that and think, has God 
been defeated. Or you can look at a situation in your life and you can think, is God really working here? Is God really working? We can miss the point when we're going through illness or family situations, whatever it is, you can look at a situation and just feel absolutely hopeless, like God isn't working. But just like here on the cross, God continues to work, doesn't he? Even though it doesn't look like it, God continues to work, even if we miss a point sometimes, right? Let's read on a little bit more, picking up from verse 25. Is it 25? It's not 25, is it? It's 45. Okay. Last little bit here. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with white vinegar and he put it on his staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs were broken open. Let's stop there. All right. Now, Jesus obviously teaches us all sorts of lessons in his life, doesn't he? We're called to model Jesus in every way that we can. It's part of being a Christian, isn't it? We're to model Jesus. I once heard it described in a pretty weird way. Someone told me when I was a new Christian, Gavin, you need to be Jesus with skin on. It's a bit weird, that, isn't it? But that's true. You know, we're meant to model Jesus. We're meant to be like Jesus. So what can we learn from Jesus in this moment of his death? Well, think about Jesus on the cross, all right? Picture that that we've just been talking about. And his final words are the final words that are recorded in Matthew, all right? In his moment of anguish, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these uh, words are interesting because on the cross, in Jesus' final moments, in all of his pain, in all of his anguish, he's quoting from the start of Psalm 22. Do you know that? Those words are taken from Psalm 22. So in his darkest moment, what's Jesus thinking about? He's going back to God's words. He's going back to scripture. See, the Bible, or what Jesus would have had in place of the Bible, is what helped Jesus' perspective in that moment. And there's a lesson in that for us. He's modeling something for us here. What Jesus is saying is that we need to learn to rely on God's word. We need to learn to live and breathe and meditate on the Bible so that in our moments of difficulty, this is the place we come back to. We don't come back to positive thinking or looking on the bright side or good advice from friends. We come back to the word of God. That's what Jesus is modeling. Can I encourage you to have that same attitude to the Bible? Learn to love it. Learn to live it and breathe it. Because then in your darkest moments, you can cling to something. And you can gain an understanding of what's happening, just like Jesus did. 
All right, because this is interesting. See, Jesus didn't just quote scripture on the cross. He obviously understood it as well. And by seeing Jesus' reaction, we can get a sense of how he was feeling. So in that moment, he was feeling lonely. He was feeling forsaken, left by God. But by quoting Psalm 22, we find Jesus actually finding hope. You see, Psalm 22 starts with, oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? But it goes on to talk about God being his strength, being close to him, being the thing that helps him. That's what Psalm 22 is about. So Jesus on the cross was drawing strength from the fact that God was in control. What a lesson. That yes, for a brief moment, Jesus was left by God. The father turned his face away. The only time that Jesus was left alone by God was that moment and then only briefly. That's what needed to happen to accomplish the victory. And Jesus understood that. Of course he did. But he died knowing the victory had been won. In John's Gospel, and we we sang about this earlier, um, we know that Jesus' last recorded words were, it is finished. That's how the story ends. We see him let out his last breath. It is finished. And the word he used for it is finished is a word called um, tetelestai, which means paid in full, complete, finished, full stop. That's how the story ends. I don't see as much excitement as I was hoping at this moment, right? (laughs) Victory's been won. Come on. All right, we're nearly done. Let's keep going. Verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I want to just end this morning by painting a picture of what was happening here as we come to the end of Good Friday. So you may not know this, but in the Jewish temple, there was different kind of parts of the temple. I don't have time to go into it in lots of detail, but there was the holiest part of the temple, which was where the Jewish people believed that God's very presence dwelt. And that was covered by a huge, massive curtain, a thick curtain, which was, you know, over 20 feet high, really thick. Like, imagine those red curtains over there, which are the thickest curtains I've ever seen in my life. All right, even thicker than those. All right, there was this massive, thick curtain which covered up the temple. And um, the veil, it was called the veil, and the veil signified religion. It signified separation. It signified structure. It signified the old way of doing things. If a non-Jew tried to go behind the curtain, they'd be killed. If most Jews tried to go behind the curtain, they'd be killed. And you know what, this is similar to some of the religious attitudes we see today by other religions, and also by some Christians, I'm sorry to say. We make it about rules. We make it about structure. We make it about acting in a certain way. If you do this, then God might accept you. If you act in this way, then you can be in God's presence. But what we see here is that that curtain was torn into from top to bottom. It was supernaturally torn into two pieces and it was from top to bottom as if to say that God has reached down to man, not the other way around. It wasn't like a guy's got a pair of scissors and said, I'm going to make my way up to God. 
It was the opposite. It was a curtain torn from top to bottom. Just think about this for a second. Good Friday, the Jewish people in the temple doing their usual worship service. And suddenly, God interrupts them with a message. And this message was no longer keep out. This message wasn't keep away from the curtain. This was God saying, the curtain is God. Come on in. Come into my presence. God was intervening. The old system, which was far too complicated, the people had made it a huge barrier. The system that the Jewish people had created had made what God intended to be easy really difficult. And God had had enough. It was an insult to God, and he was making that known. And after that moment, for the first time in history, we have direct access to God. He did. And we can talk about that afterwards. We'll talk about that Alpha tomorrow. But the Israelites were his chosen people. But now, not only the Israelites can have a relationship with God, his chosen people, but everyone can have a relationship with God. That's a really good point. Because it's not just the Israelites anymore, it's everyone. Thank you, Claire. That's a great point. Yes, we can have a relationship with God. Jesus dying brought about a new way of living. Not only does this torn curtain um, symbolize us being allowed into God's presence, but it symbolizes God coming into our midst. And we can enjoy God's presence today. That's something we've seen this morning, haven't we? As we've been worshiping and people have had words and messages from God. We can enjoy God speaking to us in our day to day. We can enjoy him guiding us. We can enjoy that personal relationship with the Savior, all because of this moment that Jesus has accomplished. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, I want, to just, I want to encourage you to keep reminding yourself that you have access to God. And you need to live like that. You need to live like that in every part of your life. You've got an open relationship with God. He can come into your life. He can affect every part of your life. You need to invest time in your walk with God. If I can get the band back up, that would be great, please. I'm nearly done. I just want to end this morning um, by just speaking to you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've just come to church for the first time or you've been around Christians for a while or maybe you've been coming for a long time but you haven't yet made that decision to follow Jesus. Let me ask you, do you want to take advantage of this new access to God? Do you want to let Jesus shape every part of your life. As we've heard this morning, do you want to be known by God? Do you want to be handpicked out of the crowds and given a new identity? Because that's what you can have because of this moment that we've discussed today. Because Jesus died, you can live in this new way. You don't have to perform rituals, you don't have to be anything, you don't have to do anything. You can have a relationship with God this morning. All you need to do is accept Jesus into your life. And let me tell you, if you do that, it'll change everything for you. If you put your trust in Jesus, it'll change your life. It changed my life so I can speak from experience. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you to take that step and put your trust in Jesus. 
and you'll never look back. So this is what we're going to do. Can I ask you to stand, if that's all right? Okay, I'm going to make this as simple as I can, all right? We're going to sing in a moment. And as we sing, all right, as soon as Shirley and the band start singing, I want to encourage you, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, if you've never put your trust in him and become a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian, I want to encourage you to make this morning a morning that all of that changes, all right? So really simply, when the band starts praying, I want to ask you to do something really brave and something which will change your life forever. I want to ask you to just come forward to the front, to the side here, and, uh, and, and pray with someone, all right? As a way of saying, yes, I want to put my trust in Jesus. Yes, I want to start a new life, all right? We're going to be singing. No one's going to be looking at you, but it still takes some courage to step out of the row and come to the front here. And when you get there, there'll be some guys to pray with you and chat with you. Can I encourage you to do that this morning? Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this historic moment, Lord, where everything changed. I thank you that this moment when you took our punishment on the cross, when you took our sins on the cross, Lord, I thank you that this moment means that today, 2,000 years later, we can live in a relationship with you. We can find the joy and the peace that comes from that. We can have our lives transformed because of that. What an amazing thing, Lord. We can have this personal relationship with you. And I want to pray this morning, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord. I pray would this be the moment this morning? Would this be the turning point in their life? So, Lord, just as we sing, I want to encourage, Lord, I want to encourage you to just speak to people and ask, would you change lives this morning? We trust you of that because you're good, Lord.